0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word and proclaim his gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, open our eyes to see the depths of our sin and the greater hope that is found in Christ alone. Have mercy on us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, whenever I go on a run, which has been slightly more often recently, uh, I like listening to a podcast. Uh, I often burn through the podcast too quickly, but recently I was listening to a podcast co hosted by my friend from Queensland, and his name is Derek. Isn't that great? Derek from Queensland. And on that episode, he said something that was remarkably profound. Here it is. Comfort covers over the cracks of a broken world. Comfort covers over the cracks of a broken world. It's so true, isn't it? It It's remarkably profound, especially for a Queenslander, right? That is absolutely profound. So many of us use our comfort to hide our fears, to hide our insecurities and to hide our sins. See, when life is easy, well, it's all too easy to just not deal with our problems. But what happens when that comfort is stripped away? Now, all the problems now come to the surface, don't they? All our sins are laid bare for the world to see. I don't know about you, but that's what this year has done, hasn't it? COVID-19, lockdown, it stripped away the comfort of our lives and it's left so many of us feeling exposed, vulnerable. You see, here's my thesis. I think that 2020 hasn't so much created new problems. I think all it's done is revealed problems that were already there. It's revealed how much we try to control our lives in vain. It's exposed how so lonely many of us are, how few genuine friendships actually we really have. And as our comfort has been stripped away, as the cracks of our broken world have been laid bare for the world to see the question for us is this what will we do about it what will we do about it you see the great risk is that we move into 2021 the world goes back to some semblance of normality and we go well let's forget 2020 and all the problems that it revealed." No, friends it surfaced our problems it's revealed the cracks of a broken world. The question is, what will we do about it? Well, just like COVID-19, Genesis 4 to 11 strips away our comfort and it exposes the cracks of our broken world. And these eight chapters are the ultimate diagnosis of our true condition. Last Sunday, our Pricey showed us the effect of sin on individuals. But today... In Genesis 5 and 6, sin is spreading like a virus. It's now this global pandemic that affects not just one human, but all humanity. And no matter who we are, Christian or not, we all need to know that sin is all our problem. Genesis 5 and 6, they strip away our comfort. They reveal our common destiny our common depravity, and our common diagnosis. There are three points today. Our common destiny, our common depravity, and our common diagnosis. And as the cracks of our lives are revealed and laid bare, the question for us is this. What will we do about it? What will we do about it? Part one, our common destiny, chapter five. Well, let me ask, what three words... If you could pick any three words to describe your destiny, what would they be? Just three words. What what three words capture the call of your life? To get married. To have children. To settle down. Please don't do that. Well, what about these three words? Then he died. Then he died it's awfully depressing isn't it and yet if we're honest with ourselves those three words then he died then she died summarize the destiny of every human being in living history in genesis 5 we find the story of humanity we find our story it's right there in chapter 5 verse 1 this is the document containing the family records of adam now that's not just talking about the first man adam Now, in Hebrew, the word Adam means humanity. This is saying that whatever your ethnicity, whatever your culture, whatever your gender, whatever your story, this is the document containing your family records. And when we look at what this record shows, we find a tragic irony. We find a mix of remarkable dignity and an inescapable destiny. A remarkable dignity and an inescapable destiny. You know, the French mathematician Blaise Pascal, he describes humanity as the glory and the garbage of the universe. Well, that's exactly what we find in Genesis chapter 5. Notice first our remarkable dignity. Our verse 1 says that all of us, both men and women, are equally made in the likeness of God. Unlike any other creature, you and I, all of us, we've been made to be like God, to be sons and daughters of God. You know, in ancient times, a son would carry on the trade of his father. So if your father was a blacksmith, well, I guess that's what you're going to be, right? He would take up his profession. He would work his business. That's what it means to be made in God's image. Just like Seth is born in Adam's likeness, well, all of us here, we are made in God's likeness. God created us to carry on his trade, to take up his profession, to work his business in the world. Now, when you think about it, that's that got a lot of dignity behind it. That gives each and every one of us remarkable value. Unlike any other creature, you and I have been blessed by God to live for God. Years ago I used to serve in youth group in my old church, and the number of times that people asked me, Adam, what is God's purpose for my life? Well, the great question, easy answer actually, God created you to live as His child. But what degree should I enroll in? God created you to live as his child. One of my good friends in Sydney ran a workshop on that topic, what is God's will for my life? His answer, don't know, don't care. Because here is actually what matters most. God created you to live as his child. You know, back in Genesis 128, what does God command Adam and Eve? That great commandment, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He wants humanity to fill this world with the life and love of God. And in Genesis 5, that's exactly what we see. Life upon life upon life, generation after generation, sons and daughters created in the likeness of God. It's a positive picture. But, but, though we have remarkable dignity, I wonder if you realize you and I, We are cursed with an inescapable destiny. You see, our story might start well, but it does not end well. Did you notice, as Yuli was reading chapter 5 so well, eight times in one chapter, what is the fate of almost every person there? Then he died. I wonder if you heard that Bible reading, if you felt the weight of our inescapable destiny. I always used to wonder what people meant when they said a death knell. I never knew what, quite what that was. But it said that when church, that church bells toll when a person dies. That, that used to be what happened. When someone died in a village, they would toll the church bell. That's what we mean when we talk about a death knell. Well, guess what? With each toll of the bell, we hear those words. Then he died. Then he died. Then he died. Friends, this is our story, and we are those for whom the bells toll. What went wrong? What went so wrong that in the, that our end is so different from our beginning? Well, it all goes back to Genesis three, doesn't it? It goes back to the moment where we rejected God as our King. The moment where we chose to live our own way. The moment where we were rightfully kicked out of the garden and separated from the tree of life, separated from the God of life. Death is our common destiny because sin is our common problem. In Romans 5 verse 12, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to All people, because all sin. Death is the great leveller, isn't it? It's the great democratizer. It really doesn't matter who we are or what we've done. In the end, all of us, we share the same destiny, don't we? You could be the most popular girl at school, the most successful man at work, but in the end, what will be said of every one of us are these three words. Then they die. And one day, it will be said of me. So Adam's life lasted 60 odd years, probably. Then he died. It's awfully depressing stuff, isn't it? I mean, if this is your first time at church, warm welcome to you. We're glad to have you here. Someone asked me, they said, Adam, what are you doing for your Advent series in the lead up to Christmas? You know, people are happy if they're coming back genesis 4 to 11 what went wrong you might have been expecting something just a little bit more uplifting but friends you know what it's only against the darkest night sky that the stars shine most brightly christmas only makes sense when we understand why jesus needed to be born you see in this sea of darkness we find glimmers of hope. We find hints that death actually need not be our final destiny. Did you notice, right, throughout that Bible reading, then he died, then he died, then he died. But then, in verses 21 to 24, we meet a man named Enoch. Twice we read that Enoch walked with God, then he was not there. Isn't that great? Not there. Why? That three new words, God took him, someone broke the bell. For Enoch, the bell does not toll. Isn't that remarkable? In this ocean of inescapable death, one man escapes because he walks with the Lord. Hebrews 11 tells us that he pleases God by faith, and so he doesn't experience death. You see, we're supposed to zero in on Enoch and go, wow, maybe, just maybe, death need not be our final destiny if only we walk with God. It gets better. In verses 28 to 30, we find a man named Lamech, and he fathers a son called Noah. This one. This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. You see, friends, Enoch hints that death need not be our final destiny. And Lamech hopes for a savior to lift the curse of sin. Wow. In this darkness, we find glimmers of hope. I hate to say it. But one day, all of us will die. And if you're not a Christian, I wonder, do you have a hope that lasts beyond death? I know you don't want to think about it. None none of us want to think about it. Most people here are quite young. Death is the last thing that we're thinking about. You want to push it off later, right? But don't waste this moment. Do you have a hope? that lasts beyond death or will the final words that are said of you be then he died then she died friends we need to know that what is hinted in enoch is realized in jesus what is hoped for by lamech is secured in jesus jesus is that savior who has freed us from the curse of sin He is the one who has changed our destiny of death. And for all of us who, just like Enoch, walk with God, for all of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, though we may die, yet we will live. There is life beyond death for all of us who follow Jesus. And just like Enoch, It will be said of us, God took them. Death is our common destiny because sin is our common problem. Part 2, chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, our common depravity. Our common depravity. Well, we've learned so many things this year, haven't we? We've all learned how quickly a virus can spread. It's okay if a virus infects just a small group of people. We can easily contact trace them, quarantine them without the virus spreading, unless, of course, we live in Melbourne. But but what happens when we lose control of the virus? Something that starts with just one person very quickly becomes a global pandemic. Well, you know what, friends? Sin is the worst kind of virus, and it will kill not just your body, but your soul as well. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world through patient zero, Adam. In Genesis 4, it's transmitted to his children and rips this family apart. Here in Genesis 5 and 6, now, my gosh, sin is a full-blown global pandemic that is affecting absolutely everyone in absolutely every place, including you and me. And in chapter 6 verse 1 to 4, we see a snapshot of sin at its absolute worst. We see the true nature of our common depravity. See, what we see in these four verses is actually a picture of the disease in all our hearts. Now let me be clear, this passage, it's not easy to understand. Because here's the big problem. We actually don't really know who these people are. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of mankind? Well, let me tell you what it is at the most basic level. The sons of God, whoever they are, are marrying the daughters of mankind, and this marriage is so wicked that it deserves the judgment of God. This is the apex of sin in Genesis 1 to 11. Now, as I said, we have no idea who the sons of God are. But let me tell you who I think they are, what I think they're doing, and why I think it's so serious. Who are the sons of God? Well, the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is also used to describe human rules and kings. It doesn't just have to mean capital G, God of the Bible. So in Psalm 82 verse 6, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. So, so the word God in Psalm 82 doesn't mean the God of the Bible. No, it simply means a human ruler or king. So when we read the sons of God in Genesis 6, we don't need to read it as if these are fallen angels. No, it's better to read them as if they are human rulers who are guilty of the most serious sin and the deepest depravity. What are they doing? Genesis 6 two. It says, They saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wise for themselves. Instead of the one man and one woman marriage of Genesis 1, we find widespread polygamy, adultery, and sexual promiscuity. All of humanity, even our rulers, are doing whatever they want, however they want, and with whomever they want. Doesn't that sound like our world today? Total sexual liberation. Total sexual anarchy. This is Jeffrey Epstein level stuff. And as you read verse 2, I wonder, do you hear an echo of an earlier part of our story? Have a listen. Let me read it to you this way. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were good and they took. Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good, so she took. You see, friends, these human rulers, representative of us all, are repeating the sin of Eve. Just as Eve grasped for what was not rightfully hers, no, these human rulers are grasping for what is not rightfully theirs. And their children, in verse 4, become powerful men of old, the famous men. Not gigantic or superhuman beasts. They are famous not for their godliness, they are famous for their godlessness. You see, we're supposed to look at the sins of these human rulers and see in them the depths of our depravity. We're to see in this extreme snapshot of sin the extent of our common sin. Now, you might hear all this. And you might read these four verses and think to yourself, well, Adam, that's a bit unfair, isn't it? I mean, that's them. That's not me. I'm not like those human rulers. And believe me, I'm not some Jeffrey Epstein, right? I don't share their depravity. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect. I get it. But I'm not a bad person at heart. Surely God can't hold me responsible for somebody else's sin. 2020 has been marked not just by virus, has it? What's the one other big issue? Racial injustice. Racial injustice. The murder of George Floyd sparked the Black Lives Matter protest movement. I'll tell you what I find curious as I listen to the commentary around that. As you hear the language of these racial justice movements, you'll often hear a lot about collective responsibility. So, we'll hear things like, we shouldn't just be targeting individual examples of racism. No, we should be dismantling systemic racism. We, we shouldn't just call out examples of oppression. No, we should be tearing down the structures of oppression. I haven't done anything racist. Okay, you might not have, but you're part of the system. And if you're part of the system, you're part of the problem. And all of you, all of us, must be held to account. There's something to it, I think, actually. You see, in Genesis 5 and 6, God strips away our comfort and he reveals not our systemic racism. He reveals our systemic sin. The last two chapters show sin corrupting individual humans. Well, these two chapters, they show sin corrupting the entire human race. And all of us here, Christian or not, are part of this system of sin. All of us share a common depravity. And one day, all of us will be held to account. So what we see in the example of these human rulers, now it's as much our problem as this, we cannot wash our hands clean of this. Because the same sin that lives in their hearts lives in ours also. You see, just as death is our our inescapable destiny, depravity is our inescapable condition. And so, God holds all of us responsible. In chapter 6, verse 3, he limits our lifespan to 120 years. And then later on in chapter 11, he limits it yet, yet again. You see, friends, with the spread of sin, there is the loss of life. My uncle in America uh, works as an oncologist. He deals on a day-to-day basis with cancer. Well, friends, sin is like a cancer that grows inside of us. It invades and destroys every sign of life. And we all know what happens when a cancer goes untreated, don't we? It will grow to such a point that though it grows we die. It will grow to such a point where life itself cannot be sustained. Sin is no different. It is the deadliest cancer of all. And Genesis 4 to 11 shows us that the spread of sin leads to the loss of life. The spread of sin leads to the loss of life. That's why death is our inescapable destiny, because depravity is our inescapable condition. You see, we might not commit the same sins as the human rulers of Genesis 6. but The same cancer lives in us all. And unless that cancer is cut out, it will claim both our body and our soul. Point three, finally, verses five to eight of chapter six, our common diagnosis. Let me tell you a bit about my uncle in America, that oncologist. I love him dearly. He is that uncle of the family, though. He's a medical specialist, but and he knows that he is, well, allergic to multiple things. And yet, he refuses to get tested. No matter how many times you tell him, you've got to get tested, he goes, I'd much rather not know. Why? Well, if we don't know a problem, then, well, there might as well not be a problem, right? Quite clever, isn't it? Don't test, not there. Let me ask this question. If God were to put us on the examining table, if he were to have a look at the state of our souls, what would his diagnosis be? Well, we find out in chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, and the results, can I tell you, can I prepare you, they are not pretty. If you like to live in blissful ignorance, don't read the next few verses. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that here it is, Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Some of you might say, rip, right? Like, that's the moment that you're like, there is no room to move there, right? Like, there, there is absolutely no space where I can go, no, nah, I'm all right. No, get that. Every inclination is nothing but evil all the time. No writer, no footnote, no exception. Just imagine going for your regular health checkup. I'm not at the point of life where I need a regular health checkup, but I will get there. And so you go for your regular health checkup, you look at your doctor and you're like, okay, hit me, what's wrong? And he looks at you and says, do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? Oh, just give me the bad news. All right, well, here it is. Um, the bad news is your liver and your kidney are failing. Uh, your blood is anemic. Your immune system is compromised and you have a malignant brain tumour. You have no more than a few weeks to live. Okay. Oh, and sorry, there is no good news. Friends, that is nothing compared with the diagnosis that you and I receive in chapter 6, verse 5. When God puts our souls on the examining table, there is no good news to be found. You and I are spiritually terminally ill. In fact, no, I lie, it's far worse than that. Actually, Ephesians 2 says that we are spiritually, clinically dead. You see, if God were just a doctor, I'm sorry to you doctors who are here, but if God were just a doctor who I have no real relationship with, then call in the coroner, mate, right? Because there is no hope of life, no hope of salvation. And in the end, all that will be said of us on that medical record are those three words, then he died but i wonder if you noticed that god is not an impersonal doctor he is a loving father who is deeply grieved by the depth of our sin i I want you to just close your eyes for a moment don't fall asleep close your eyes and feel the emotion of verses six and seven the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Verse 6 literally says that God was grieved to the heart isn't that heartbreaking isn't that absolutely heartbreaking that god almighty would grieve the sin of his children that our sin actually rends the heart of god in into now there's two groups of people who respond to that right one group of people go oh my gosh that's that's just so moving how could my sin do that to god and the other group of you go well No, 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 no. How is it that God can regret? Isn't God supposed to be all-knowing and in control? Doesn't 1 Samuel 15 say, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind? So why is he changing his mind here? Well, let me dispense with that question first and then invite you to what's more important. God does not change his mind because just as Samuel says, he is not a man who changes his mind. Thank God that God is not like us. He is perfect in every way. And yet, in these words, he uses our human experience of grief and regret to describe the seriousness of sin in terms that you and I understand. In one sense, he's accommodating to us. This is God stooping to our level. John Calvin says he is lisping to us like a nurse would lisp to an infant. God is using human experiences of grief to emphasise the depths of our sin. So no, God does not change his mind. But don't dispense with that so quickly. Do you feel the weight of what's going on here? Right? Are you grieved by your sin just as much as God is? If you stop to think about it, it is absolutely nuts to think that my sin could be so bad that we would grieve the heart of God to the point of Him undoing creation itself. It's as if God looks at a way with humanity as children beyond redemption. I can't imagine being a parent who loves their child so much only to see their child destroy their own life. That's gotta be heartbreaking. It would feel like a knife through your heart, surely. Maybe something that some of us do experience and know. If you've ever experienced anxiety before, you might know that feeling of struggling to breathe, where you have to lie down to catch your breath. And it's that moment that you're so sad you're not quite sure whether it's your chest tightening or your heart breaking. Friends, when we read these verses, we should hear the breaking of God's heart. Have you ever thought of your sin in that way? It's not how I naturally think about sin. It's easy to think of my sin as breaking God's rules, as failing God's standards, as deserving God's judgment. But how often do you think of your sin as grieving God's heart? Because it does. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here and you're wanting to find out more about who Jesus is. And you might have this view of God as some distant, remote, impersonal God ready to strike you down for doing the slightest wrong thing. But you need to know that God is not an impersonal doctor, He is not the coroner, and he's not an impersonal judge. No, he is a father who loves you. And every moment of your life that you live apart from him, every day of your life that you ignore and reject him, it grieves his heart. Some years ago, I read a novel called uh, The Kite Runner. You might have seen it or read it before. It tells the story of a young Afghani boy named Amir who grows up under the Taliban regime. I read that novel, Oh gosh, I think maybe 12 years ago. There is, though, one line 12 years later that is seared into my memory. They are the words spoken by an old man named Rahim Khan to young Amir. This is what he says. Come, there is a way to be good again. There is a way to be good again. Man, they're powerful words, aren't they? atonement is possible friends for the darkness of today's passage it ends with a glimmer of hope verse 8 noah however found favor with the lord come there is a way to be good again atonement is possible but in this story no, in our story, it's not by our effort. It is purely by the favor and grace of God. You see, Noah, he he's just like us in many ways. He shares our common destiny. He shares our common depravity. He shares our common diagnosis. But God, nevertheless, shows him favor. The Lord shows him grace. And that very same God shows us favor and grace in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by our goodness, but all in Christ alone. In Christ alone, there is a way to be good again. Friends, let me ask, if your doctor warned you that you were on the cusp of fatal heart failure, what would you do? Genesis 5 and 6, it's the ultimate diagnosis of humanity. It warns us that unless we, like Enoch, walk with the Lord, we will surely die. And the question for us is this. What will we do about it? What will you do about it? If you're not a Christian, you need to know that there is a way to be good again. Atonement is possible. If only you walk with God. If only you follow Jesus. And for us believers, we need to take seriously our individual and our collective sins. We must repent of those corporate sins which all of us share in. We must recognize that our sin grieves the heart of God. And let us praise God that in Jesus, Death is not our final destiny. Friends, I want to give you a moment right now before we stand and sin. Why don't you take a moment in the quietness of your heart to confess your sins to God, confident that as you confess your sins, He will forgive you. Take a moment to do just that. Almighty God, open our eyes to see the depths of our sin and the greater hope that is found in Christ alone. Have mercy on us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.